Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. Today I'll be talking to Evelyn Burke, who is the chief executive of Bupa, one of the world's leading healthcare specialists. I'll also be meeting Lorena Poika, who's the founder and CEO of a company and foundation called I Am Why I Am. We're going to be talking about the idea that if the future of healthcare is digital, uh, what will humans do? Uh, we'll ask if healthier companies are really more successful. And we'll be looking at how a multi-billion pound company with thousands of employees and millions of customers around the world can make a positive difference on an extremely local level. Let's get to the conversation. My first guest today is Evelyn Burke, who is the Chief Executive of Bupa. Evelyn, welcome. Hi, Ollie. Uh, great to be here and thank you for having me. Well, it's been, uh, I've been so looking forward to meeting you because Bupa is an organisation that everybody knows. And so, uh, but I'm going to start on a more personal note because uh, I ask all my guests about their first ever job. So take us back. Where were you? What were you doing? Um, well, actually, I think my first ever paid job was at home on the farm. And uh, I think kind of around age of 15, 16, I uh, was pestering my dad to give me a job that he'd pay me for. So we had some pocket money. Um, and uh, he came up with the idea that we could paint all the gates on the farm. Yes. <laughs> and uh, a cousin of mine, uh, who was around the same age as me, uh, we enrolled in this project of painting all the gates. The problem is farm gates is not actually a particularly nice job to take on because you have to start with a wire brush and clean the gates and then yeah. wash them down and and we had to do it properly. There was no question of cutting corners. He came in and inspected it. Getting but, your hands uh, dirty, yeah. yeah. And you're part of a big family. I mean, what, <laughs> eldest of six. Yes. Um, you end up beginning your career with New Ireland Assurance and the Bank of Ireland. In fact, uh, you were one of the first two women in Ireland to qualify as an actuary. So I guess that's it's that sort of analysing data, evaluating risk. So from the farm to there, but why? What, 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 tell us about the start. Uh, Sort of fell into it a bit by accident because um, uh, came out of school with um, a really good leaving cert, lots of you know A's across languages and science and maths, and uh, couldn't figure out what to do next. Um, but uh, the newspapers were advertising for trainee actuaries, and it basically said, um, if you've got an A in honours maths, come and be a trainee actuary and have a very exciting career. So I interviewed for some jobs and I got offered a job and I thought, OK, I may as well take it, move to Dublin, uh, try it out for a year. And if I didn't like it, I was then at least established in Dublin and I could um, was on site for actually checking out university options at that point. And um, uh, the reality was I loved it. Um, and actually what I loved is not so much the actuarial thing, but it was actually being in business mm. and what it takes to make a company work. New Ireland was a comparatively small company so you could kind of get your arms around it. Now leading Bupa. Now Bupa's a bit different isn't it because it's a company limited obviously known globally for its healthcare uh, but it's limited by guarantee so just, just remind us sort of what that means. What, does it, what makes it a bit different? So yes so Bupa's a very unusual ownership structure in that it's a company limited by guarantee with no shareholders and that means actually nobody owns Bupa and in Bupa's Articles of Association um, which were created when Bupa was uh, created 70 years ago, it says that if for some reason um, the directors decided to um, either you know sell all the operating assets of Bupa, the proceeds would have to go into a charity which would continue to pursue the original objects for which um, Bupa was founded. So if we get into Bupa and healthcare, um, yep. do you see Bupa as about helping people when they're ill or about keeping them healthy in the first place? How do, how do you view it? Well, um, 
70% of what Bupa does is health insurance. Yeah. And the fundamental reason for taking out health insurance is that you're covered in the event of something happening to you and you're having to go into hospital. So the reality is that we are mostly um, helping people when they get ill. Um, but we also, um, alongside health insurance, and of course, through our health insurance programmes, we are often supporting employers in putting in place programmes to encourage the health and wellness of their employee populations. Um, and in our care, um, in our provision businesses, we do dental. And, um, you know, so dental is partly corrective, but it's also actually um, preventative. Um, uh, our aged care businesses are actually about keeping um, frail elderly people safe, well cared for, um, happy. And actually, when you look at your yeah. customers, they are in 150 company, uh, countries. They're of all yes. ages. I mean, is, is this sort of mainly about physical health? Because we're hearing increasingly about the importance of mental health. So to an extent, is that something we think as mental well? health is really important as well. And in fact, actually, you know, poor mental health can often be a precursor to poor physical health. Um, and it's, it's also the case with mental health that if um, someone who's kind of having some difficulty can access help earlier, um, it can make a dramatic impact on the outcomes. And we find particularly our corporate customers in insurance um, much more engaged in talking about, well, how do they support their employees with mental health? health services, even recently, um, responding to um, what our customers were telling us that they wanted, um, we've actually, in our corporate insurance programme, introduced mental health services, a broader range, and our employer, that's in response to what employers are saying they want to offer And just employees. zooming into that a little bit, Evelyn, what would that look like in practice if someone was supporting an employee's mental health? Um, as an example? It means um, that actually there's telephone services to access if someone is worried about um, how they're feeling. Um, they can get, you know, kind of advice over the phone on whether maybe it might be a good idea to go and get some sort of clinical assessment. And that's that um, Boop is providing or that the company is providing? Well, we would help people actually get the right, get to the right clinical um, place to actually be assessed. Um, we would help people if they wanted to actually get counselling services, if they were if they were recommended by their clinician um, to have CBT, um, we would actually support them in accessing them. Um, and there's also online um, CBT services, which yeah, might so be right for some people. Cognitive behavioural therapy. Cognitive, yes, exactly. Cognitive okay. behavioural therapy. Yeah. Well, one, one thing we might talk about uh, a bit later is, um, you know, the role of humans in all of this, because I'm yes. conscious that there's yes. so much that's being digitised. So on this theme, if you like, um, um, today of digital health, and when I say that, what does that mean to you? What uh, what, what comes to your mind? Um, well, well, what comes to mind are probably. Um, uh, digital applications, um, and they can be anything from, you know, things which help you count your steps because, you know, just doing more walking is actually really, really good for people. Yeah. Something surprisingly simple. There are lots of apps about sleep and diet and so forth. Um, the, the, if you like, next generation of all those apps are becoming more sophisticated and trying to introduce gamification, encourage people to create little yes. competitions um, with their friends through their social media um, applications. Um, but then there, there are also um, increasing applications around which are, might be called sort of virtual GP services mm -hmm. or virtual primary care advisory services. So on the one hand, helping people yes. stay healthy, but on the other, yes. how people actually connect. And, exactly. And, and is that because the British public aren't sort of 
up for it, aren't ready for it? Or is that just because that technology has been sort of pioneered in the US? Um, it has hugely to do with the funding. So um, in the US, health insurance covers all primary care, in-hospital care, out-of-hospital, post-hospital care. In the UK, you have the NHS, whereby basically GP services are free to the public because it's paid out of tax. So, you know, the access to the GP means, you know, you people are only necessarily seeking out um, digital type applications for convenience because they're working, they'd like to do it. It's But the vast majority of people probably are still going to a GP who sits in an office in front of a computer. Yeah, I understand. And so it's always a bit risky, isn't it, making predictions. But anything you think we'll start to see, particularly in this digital health space, could be some trends that you're currently watching. I'm obviously putting you on the spot. The, um, I, do, I do think we will see more digital kind of, as I say, primary care, because, but I think they'll be complementary to, in the UK, they'll be complementary to what the NHS does. Mm. I think we'll see probably more NHS physicians operating in a digital way that you don't physically always have to actually go to the GP's office. Because even today, if you have a GP, I mean, you can actually email them sometimes and call them rather than always having to turn up in person. So I think that could definitely change. Yeah, It's evolving um, so fast, isn't it? It is. I mean, in terms of how you harness these innovations, you recently launched at Bupa an accelerator program. It was called Bupa B Table. So just have a quick look inside that. What what, what were you doing and what, what came out of it? Um, so we're, this is the um, second um, instance of it. Um, when we did it last year, um, we... Uh, in you know we put out a number of themes that we would like to actually that we were offering startups to come and partner with us on. Um, they were in aged care, they were in um, wellness, and uh, and we partnered with a um, an outside organisation called L Marks who helped us, you know, put the message out there in the whole startup world, saying here's a number of themes. The idea is make a pitch on something you're working on that you think is relevant to these themes. And then we would run a process of winnowing everybody down. We ended up with one day where we had about 30 um, startups and they all had the opportunity to make a short, sharp presentation. We brought that down to about five. And then they came in in-house in Bupa in a startup space inside our HQ um, where we enabled them to work really closely with the parts of our business that were really relevant yeah. um, to and, their topic. And they are offering support. Are you investing in them? Are you taking shares in them? Or is it more um, of a partnership? We are continuing to work with a couple of them. Um, one of them was a, is a company called Spixy, and they do chatbots. Um, yeah. And it was a chatbot which would help a customer walk through from a, an initial inquiry about health insurance through to actually getting a quotation um, and potentially even uh, getting the policy started. Interesting. Yeah. So one lesson you've learned from that, because I see so many large organisations starting their own accelerators. So anything you took from that uh, uh, um A couple of things. Um, I think there's a huge amount our people learn from actually working with startups because the startup typically works in a much more agile way than our traditional in-house processes. So we saw... Um, opportunities to actually make our processes more agile. Two, it's hard. It really is hard. You know, you've got a small startup and you've got the humongous machine that is the big corporate with all that comes with being a big corporate. Um, but it takes a lot of willingness on both sides. But if um, the third thing is 
um, and I think it's a kind of universal truth, but it just came back again and again and again. You have to focus on the customer problem. You have to get really, really clear. And I guess both agree on what that is. Exactly. On the startup exactly. and the corporate Because it's side. easy in, you know, in kind of digital land to get seduced by shiny baubles. Bottom line is, what's the customer problem? Yeah. And you have to maintain the discipline of um, focusing on the customer problem. Well, we might return to this theme of uh, startups working uh, with other organisations. But for now, uh, Evelyn Burke, thank you very much. Thank you, Ali. My second guest today is Lorena Poika, who is the chief executive and founder of I Am Why I Am, which is the name of a brilliant company, but also a foundation. Uh, welcome, Lorena. Thank you, Ali. A pleasure to be here to discuss the future of health and beyond. Now, a, a very warm welcome to you. Now, Lorena, uh, tell us a bit about your uh, background, uh, your first job, but, al- but also where you grew up. Mm. So you can tell I'm not local. <laughs> I'm originally from Romania, uh, was born to a father quantum physicist and a mother entrepreneur. So a very weird mix of a hardcore scientist and then my mother, an absolute superhero to me. And um, that's a good segue because one of my first jobs, um, my father was of the opinion that um, the best way to learn things is really not in the comfort of your family. (laughs) So my mother um, got me a job when I was about 10 in a shop with one of her friends. And uh, the idea was to truly understand different types of people in different circumstances as early as possible. And you will understand later on why, because I had my own challenges in terms of both communicating and and understanding um, overall the human condition and understanding what people are about. Yeah. And in terms of um, your childhood, were those entrepreneurial tendencies there? Were they starting to emerge? Actually, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was as big of a geek as you can imagine. Mm. My idea of fun was sitting at my desk, sometimes under my desk, and just working out math problems. And uh, working with my father on the physics side, I mean, I was absolutely fascinated by finding out how things work and why they work as they work. So entrepreneurship, not at all. And so as you went into uh, the world of work and through your studies, um, you faced a a couple of pretty significant challenges, didn't you? I hope you don't mind me asking about them, particularly in terms of your health. Um, Tell us what happened and what that that triggered, I suppose. Yes, so um, I left home at 17 and I was obsessed with learning and I thought the answer is knowledge. So I thought I only come with the head not with the body. So I've done about five degrees in math and finance, economics, published a book when I was 26, and then um, received the Charter Financial um, designation when I was about 24. So I've done a lot and everything in my head. And about five years in my career in strategy and investment management, I was diagnosed with a thyroid condition. Now, The way I noticed that is that uh, I went to sleep on Friday evening and I woke up on Sunday. So that was a good enough hint that something is not right. A wake-up call. Exactly. I mean, I completely neglected the early warning signs, the tiredness, the gaining weight, and that was a massive wake-up call. 
Yeah. So it sort of forced you, in a way, to take your health seriously. And I guess, in a way, that sowed some of the seeds uh, for what you ended up creating. Um, between those two things, you moved to London. What, what triggered that? And also, tell us a little bit about the very beginning of I Am, Why I Am. Right. Um, I started my career in strategy with Allianz, so in insurance, <laughs> and uh, spent about a decade in Germany. And then I moved to London. It felt like I, ha- since I was little, I was fascinated with London. I still don't know why, but it's 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 phenomenal to be here. And um, about nine years into living in Munich, um, I had the strive to look at London, London, both because it's the the financial center, but also the UK has been a hub for innovation and for for scientific discoveries for decades, for millennia. It's been brilliant at that. And I think that was a massive pull factor for me. And then I I came here, worked in investments, and uh, then started to deal with my health challenges. And um, for my, the the condition that I mentioned, I was actually mismedicated for about five years. And by the time I've discovered that I'm mismedicated through second opinions in the US and in Germany, um, the only solution that was offered to me was to remove my thyroid. Wow. And at 27, you really do not want that. <laughs> it was it was dramatic in every way. And um, when I was faced with that single option, I said, well, surely there must be a better way. And that was the, the seed of IMYM, which at that time I didn't really understand it is. So I've spent about two years doing hardcore research into what I could do. Um, and because to a certain extent I was also um, um, looking after my mother, I felt like I don't have the luxury to wait and see. So after two years of trial and error with with different approaches that I researched myself and wrote a mini algorithm, as a geek would do, um, I, through that kind of trial and error approach, at the end of the two years, uh, when I went for a final checkup, everything was A-OK. Now, part of me still didn't believe that. That's when I said the best way to try and uh, figure out whether I am healthy was to do the triple seven. Now, the triple seven, what's that? um, It's not double (laughs) oh seven. It's uh, seven marathons on seven continents oh my goodness. in seven days. Uh, yes. <laughs> so um, two Guinness World Records. It re- that, that was the best way to test every single dimension of what it means to be a human being and yes. see whether so, that's, so, some that Some people would uh, lie on a beach and say, do I feel okay? Yes, I feel okay. But no, triple seven, <laughs> slightly different, good. Make sure that every single box and is how did ticked. You, how did you feel at the end of that? Horrendous, probably. Uh, d- yes. <laughs> I didn't even want to walk to the office for three weeks. I was <laughs> taking a car. Now, I'm, I'm filled with questions about those, um, those um, journeys. But um, just give, give us the elevator pitch on I Am Where I Am. What is it today? Because I've been having a bit of a dabble, but in your own words. <laughs> Super. So in, in, through my experience and then through a world of research, it became obvious that over the past 200 years, which is kind of the history of medicine as we know it, since the birth of the first journal of medicine in 1812, um, medicine has been about waiting until something breaks and then finding the smartest, most innovative way to fix that. And 
through my journey, I would have loved if someone would have helped me with the early warning signs and at those points to help me get back on the horse. So rather than wait until I was completely rock bottom, is on that downward uh, curve to identify earlier on what the early warning yes. signs Almost are. Almost like a dashboard what, in a car, I guess. Exactly. And to provide me simple things, because we don't like complex things, I don't want like complex things, but the smallest micro steps to, to, to kind of get back to that normality, that point of health. Got it. So in a nutshell, I Am Why I Am is a platform, I guess. It's a platform that empowers people, number one, to, to discover that picture of themselves and identify what are those risk factors and then giving them those micro steps such that they can take action themselves. So let's have an example of someone that, um, obviously not naming them, but an example of someone you've worked with that you've really proud to have had an effect on their life. Yes, we've worked uh, with about 15,000 people so far. And a good example is um, um, someone in a, in a corporate, which shall remain unnamed, um, that has, while incredibly successful, he's, he's struggled with identifying whether he does have a mental health issue or he doesn't and who to go to. So with him, we, through the fact-finding journey and through the molecular analysis, and we've painted a picture of this is where you are right now. And these are some of the tiniest things you can do because he did experience fatigue, poor concentration, um, uh, certain levels of anxiety, though not nowhere close to being depressed. Yes. However, with so much going on in the media around mental health and depression, Deep inside, he was questioning, well, am I depressed or am I not? Yeah. So with him, we've helped him figure out what exactly are the things that he can work on. And also doing that in a um, radically private way. So while this has been through a corporate, the corporate never had access to the individual person's information. Yeah. The the entity, the corporate, has just in enabled access to this yes. in a very discreet, private way. Well, I'm hoping that we can all talk together about this, but that's a crystal clear example, also hints at this connection between physical and mental that Evelyn was talking about earlier. Um, now, Lorena, you've listened to um, our conversation with Evelyn earlier. It's great to have you both in the studio together. Do you have questions for each other? Uh, Lorena, um, question, question for Evelyn. Yes, I, I'm, I'm deeply impressed and fascinated uh, because... We see a lot of um, giants in different industries that through time they tend to lose the northern star, the guiding direction. And you've touched in your example specifically on that um, radical focus on the customer. The customer is what drives your decisions. In that context, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where do you see the future of health because you're playing such a key role in the UK as well as globally. And you have both the power and the, the understanding to shape as well as empower people to, to move into uh, the best that health has to offer going forward. Yeah, it's a hugely complex question. Um, we operate in a number of different countries across the world. Um, we operate within the health system 
you know, so the, we don't set the rules of the game. The rules of the game are often laid down by as a result of, you know, legacy decisions made by government. So, for example, um, you take the NHS today, probably would be um, impossible for a current government to actually decide to actually launch something of the scale of um, uh, the NHS. Um, but it's, you know, kind of a huge part of British society and will remain so for a long time. Um we have to work alongside the NHS. We're not an alternative to it. We're a, we see ourselves more as a complement um, to the NHS. Um, there are other countries where we truly are an alternative to the NHS. So, for example, we're in Saudi Arabia because people who, um, expatriate workers in Saudi Arabia, have to have their own health insurance to access the private system because um, they, are, they don't have access to the public system. So we're funding a very different proposition. I think our job is to stay really close to how customers' um, attitudes and behaviours are changing. We don't see ourselves running ahead of where customers are at or anticipating you know, major technological developments because that's not the game we're in. We have to stay you know, in lockstep with customers but also eyes on how things are shaping up. Interesting. Now, I want us to have a wider conversation about uh, digital health in particular. But first, I've got some very quick questions that I want to get through. It's a sort of a, a quick fire uh, round, if you like. So I'm always interested in recommendations from our guests. So, Lorena, I'm going to start with you because I'm going to ask you a book that you recommend. It doesn't have to be a business book, by the way. <laughs> it's a book that I recently read, although it's, uh, it came out in 2004. Um, it's called On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. Brilliant book because this guy was so focused on understanding how the brain works that he de dedicated his life to it for now quite a few decades. So he brought that topic back quite a few decades. So on intelligence. On intelligence. Yeah, we'll put this in the uh, show notes. Evelyn, what would be on your bookshelf? Fooled by Randomness um, by Nassim Tlaib. And it's his first book. And I think, frankly, I think it's his best book. This because is I think Black he was, Swan. Exactly, because I think he was... Um, he was really evolving his ideas and, you know, there are a number of takeaways in it. Um, one of one of the biggest ones is, you know, when you're leading something and you are actually got seemingly a track record of success, be very careful that you're not fooling yourself that somehow or other that success is just down to you. You might just be lucky. Yes. So, you know, in life, it's always a good idea to have your eye out for the, you know, cannonball that can come out of left field and knock you off and be actually... Um, stay, stay humble. Stay, yeah. stay inquiring. Stay curious. Yeah. Watch out these... for arrogance. Watch out for blinkeredness. And that's why these um, collaborations fascinate me so much. So you get to know uh, the insurgents, perhaps. Who knows? Um, Lorena, someone you'd love to meet. He's dead, but <laughs> I'd love to meet Richard Feynman. He was a brilliant mind in physics, and he was also incredibly wacky and incredibly. Um, authentic in the way he, he revolutionised physics. I, I'd adore, I'd, I'd love to meet him. Now, Evelyn, that's our first uh, guest that's been suggested that's no longer with us. But Evelyn, who will you go for? Um, Atul Gawande. Atul Gawande has written um, a number of books about kind of how the US health system can actually um, take on practices which would actually help achieve better outcomes for customers and reduce the cost of healthcare. He is He is often been seen as at odds with the kind of general thrust of the US health system on a 
pay for, on a fee-for-service basis, which tends to drive over-treatment. Um, I think fan- fantastically courageous, inspiring guy and a fabulous speaker. Thank you both uh, very much. Now, um, something that's occurred to me again and again as you've been speaking is that um, digital technology is really changing what can be achieved with healthcare. And yet, at its core, your businesses are human businesses. Bupa is nothing if not um, fueled by brilliant people. So, Lorena, Evelyn, where do humans factor in the or feature in the future of healthcare? Because some things will be done by machines and others yeah, by humans. I, I'm, I'm absolutely clear that healthcare in the future is still about people looking after people. And the role of technology and digital and all that is to enable the people who are delivering care and advice to do it more accurately, smarter, etc. But it's about leveraging up the personal capability. I, you know, don't... I don't see in my lifetime robots in care homes um, to any great, because I don't think um, a robot, no matter how amazing it is, can truly deliver the empathy um, and that kind of personal connection that a human can. Um, I don't see robots turning up as dentists. Um, and uh, you know, even in health insurance, kind of one one of the things we find is that when someone is actually going through some sort of medical um, uh, situation and they want advice um, they want to talk to a human and you know it's only a human who can actually be empathetic truly listen truly relate truly and genuinely share an experience um, which actually shows that they do understand what's actually happened so that human so piece is while so I agree that humans will forever be at the core of of health I mean health is is all about humans. Only humans can experience health. Um, in regards to robots, I do see robots in certain areas. And I'll qualify that. So I see the digital revolution uh, bringing access to a um, set of information that gets to the right people in the right time. And I've done a government mission to India Um, 6% of the population suffer from diabetes. Less than 3% are aware that sugar is bad for you if you have diabetes. So just uh, leveraging technology to give access to that information, the right information that's personalized to the individual, incredibly powerful. In terms of the um, robot conversation, which I think is fascinating, um, there are, we have an aging population And Japan is really suffering under the pressure of an aging population. And we see people with cognitive decline across different um, categories. However, there aren't enough carers. And sometimes we see things like music therapy that is incredibly helpful. And the carer, what the carer can do is come and play the, 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 the music. Well, if a robot comes and is close to someone that is... Um, suffering from cognitive decline and Alzheimer's can just do that. So it's, again, technology can enable access and in, empower um, broader spread of the helpful information, though not really build the emotional connection. That is, we don't even understand what empathy yeah. is. <laughs> I, I think we're saying the same things because I can see robots taking away 
you know, low value drudge tasks. I mean, exactly. you know, even in insurance companies, robots can do the piece about taking data out of one source and translating it into another source and they can do it more accurately, consistently. And frankly, it's a very boring job for a human and they make mistakes because they get bored. Yeah. That's But, you know, when it comes to, and I think robots can actually complement humans in care homes, exactly as you say, Lorena, by taking out, you know, if the job is hit the button to play the music, clearly a robot can do that. So how do we make sure then that all of these innovations aren't just accessed and therefore benefiting um, the better off? How do we make them more inclusive? Um, How do we make sure that we don't have perhaps billions of people uh, left behind? Lorena, what, what, what can we do to make these more inclusive? What we have done is instead of just creating a company, uh, we've created at the same time both a foundation and the business. And the mission of the foundation is really to provide this technology to anyone everywhere. So that's schools, universities, care homes, retirement homes that most likely cannot afford the paid-for solution. So I think health is a human right, albeit not everyone has access to it in the same way. So our mission is to to make sure that to the extent we can is to provide access to people that can afford it as much as to people that cannot afford it. So irrespective of income level, everyone should have access to, to something that is actually quite quite simple to yes. use. And in a sense, um, Evelyn Lorena has um, a benefit of building something from the ground up, incorporating this. How can Bupa um, evolve to include uh, more people? Um, well, it's, I mean, we have foundations as well, and we um, uh, engage in projects in communities about how do you actually support people live um, healthier uh, lifestyles. But I think if we back up for a minute to the kind of core question, how do you ensure that, you know, vast swathes of society get to benefit from some of this innovation. I think, first of all, you have to come back to the role of government because governments are architects of the health systems of the country for the population. I think it is the role of government to ensure that, you know, at the most basic level of society, there is access appropriate for people who are, you know, for everybody. And I think digital actually has a huge role to play in that. A bit like Lorena said, if digital can enable people, you know, to get access to some information which could actually help change their, you know, behaviour or help mothers maybe um, look after their children, um, look after the health of their children more effectively, then governments should be working hard to try to do that. And Um, I sometimes worry if some of the mistakes of yesterday will put off politicians from embracing digital. Is that, is, is it, could that be a risk? Um, I mean, I think things have to pass through certain proof points. Yeah. No question. And that's why you have regulatory, you know, um, systems to in, to test and ensure something is is safe. But, um, you know, the, the um, you know, when governments get behind major health initiatives like, you know, smoking cessation, healthier buildings, they can kind of in, in a fairly short space of time, actually have really quite fundamental impacts on um, health of society. Absolutely. Uh, so so a, a final, and again, it's a huge question. So here in the UK, adult obesity rates have almost quadrupled in the last 25 years. So what needs to happen in practical terms? What do you think? Where would you even begin to see those numbers going in the opposite direction? <clears throat> I tackle schools. I think um, talking to small children about what, is you know good for you versus not is is actually I think a um, a powerful way in 
um, because um, you know you need to make it fun. You, you need to. You can't just come out and be boring and tell them, you know, um, uh, what good it looks like. You have to find a way to engage them. But I think yeah. I think getting people when they're really young is yeah. key. Brilliant initiative, the Daily Mile, in over three thousand schools now. School children running a mile yeah. a day. Yeah. Obesity rates plummeting in the schools that are doing that. Lorena, what, what would you add? Um, and we are rolling out with the school through the foundation, and we see that children, as much as um, um, lecturers and um, carers, need that information. I I believe that it's a um, combination of what the private sector can do and startups in terms of educating people. At the same time, uh, we've seen examples of people would like to access healthier foods and more nutrient-dense foods. However, in certain regions, it's hard to find. So while I I feel we are doing what we can, and I can see that Bupa is very much doing that too in terms of informing people and giving access to the right set of information. I think there's also the role that government needs to play to, to, to ensure access to the resources in those areas to support accessing and acting on this knowledge. Yeah. Just going back to companies, um, are healthier companies more successful companies? Uh, or are those two completely separate, Lorena? Is there any is there any sort of thinking on this? Absolutely. I mean, some of the first... Um, Corporate health improvement programs were launched in the U.S. They tend to be ahead on, on this, and it was over 25 years ago, that showed 40% higher um, profits, which is huge um, for companies that have significantly healthier employees. Really? And um, that's been 20 years ago. So, Evelyn, uh, a final question for you. How does an employer take an active interest in the health of its people without crossing a line and being, you know, obtrusive or, you know, crossing over into what some might say is the employee's personal exactly. business. Exactly. And so you've got to be very, you've got to be very careful. But I think, um, uh, and, you know, employers can do that by actually, you know, it, um, starting with even simple things like ensuring that the canteens um, and the snacks are actually have healthy options. Um, they can promote programs to to people about actually, you know, practical things you can do, um, you know, to actually improve your health. And uh, yeah, but an employer has to respect the privacy of um, uh, the employee. But there's a lot, There's there really is a lot. To, it's almost like if the posture of the employer is encouraging people to be healthier rather than a posture not taking any interest. And finally, um, Lorena, a piece of advice to your former self. You go back to that. Um, girl growing up in Romania, what would you say? I'd say that um, understanding life through people is the, the biggest gift and the biggest reason to be alive. So exper- I, I've learned so much more through experiences and through meeting interesting people. It doesn't matter what country, what place in the world, just meeting interesting people and being... Um, being humble to what they have to say and the way they see the world. Completely agree. Evelyn? Um, it'll sound trite, but it kind of echoes um, what Lorena is saying. People make the biggest difference um, again and again and again. They just, um, you can, I think if you have the right people around you, you can do practically anything. You can overcome any obstacle. Um, 
uh, that's, yes. Excellent. You're making me feel a little bit guilty about the crisps and biscuits in the lens green room <laughs> earlier, so I'm off to buy uh, some muesli bars. Uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Evelyn and Lorena, for helping us really think about health and in particular digital health. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Ollie, and thank you, Evelyn. Thank you. Watch out for the muesli bars, they're full of sugar. Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) That was The Lens, hosted by me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe in iTunes, and you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. The Lens is a business and the community programme, supported by Fujitsu. Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter. Music and editing by Adam Smythe. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.